And our New Testament challenge, our reading for today is Luke, the fourth chapter. Uh, another rich chapter indeed. In this chapter, Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness. He begins his public ministry in the region of Galilee, preaching in the difficult place of his own hometown, but successfully overcoming the power of the devil through his many healings and miracles. So let's consider some of the ideas that we find here. And I want to continue first to something we started thinking about a little bit yesterday, and that is uh, Jesus as, well, I guess the, the first Adam and the second Adam, and Jesus as compared to the first Israel and the true Israel. Um, there's all this, the, the, the focus on Jesus fulfilling everything that the Old Testament pointed forward to. So um, to review again, we saw Luke present Jesus as fulfilling the covenant with Abraham in chapter 1 and fulfilling the covenants with David and Moses in chapter through, chapter through, chapter 2. And in uh, chapter 3, I indicated that there was some importance in Luke's genealogy of Jesus reaching back to Adam. And here, I just want to briefly explore that a little more. As I said regarding the end of the last chapter, Luke apparently has a theological purpose for laying out the genealogy of Jesus going as far back to Adam, unlike Matthew, who only carried it as far back as Abraham. Well, what, what was his purpose? Well, notice with me again how Luke words the end of chapter 3. There we read, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's the, Luke 3.38. Not only does Luke end chapter 3 with a reference to Adam, but he identifies Adam as, in some sense, a son of God. The, the son of Adam, the son of God. In what sense is Adam a son of God? Well, clearly Luke is thinking that Adam had no human ancestor, but was the direct creation of God. And thus, where Seth was the son of Adam, Adam was the son of God, since, unlike Seth, he had no human father. But again, what is Luke's purpose in making that specification. Well, I believe it's, it's clear that right on the heels of this, he introduces Jesus as a sort of second Adam, who the devil himself will rightly identify in chapter 4, verse 3, as a true son of God, with a capital S, and who will be obedient to the commands of God where the first Adam was disobedient. And as we mentioned yesterday, this is, this is confirmed later in the New Testament when we see the Apostle Paul comparing the disobedient Adam to the obedient Jesus in Romans chapter 5 and actually compares the first man Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first man Adam to Jesus as the last Adam. Why is this important? It shows Jesus accomplishing the good news we now believe in the gospel that whereas we are born into this world with the first Adam's disobedience credited to our account, now the obedience and righteousness of the second Adam is credited to our account by faith. In some, here in Luke 4, we see Jesus accomplishing the good news. We now trust for our salvation. And to emphasize this even further, he draws a comparison between Old Testament Israel and Jesus as a true Israel. He has already opened the door to this comparison in, in, in chapter 2 during the focus on Jesus' birth and early childhood in the temple, how Jesus through his parents were strictly adhering to the law of Moses. 
And here in chapter 4, the comparison revolves around Old Testament Israel disobeying the law in the wilderness. Uh, and, and you see that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Jesus obeying the law in the wilderness as well. You see that here in Luke 4 and also Matthew chapter 4. At every temptation the devil brings to him in the wilderness, Jesus obeys the very law that the people of Israel in the Old Testament were, were supposed to remember and obey, but didn't in their days in the wilderness. Thus, they just wandered and died there. To sum up, Luke's two comparisons here, uh, they, they have a similar point. The first Adam, like us, failed to keep the law of God in the garden as well. The Old Testament people of Israel, like us, failed to keep the law of God in the wilderness. Jesus obeyed and succeeded where all previously had failed. That, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, let's think next about the Holy Spirit versus unclean spirits. Luke, among all the gospel writers, perhaps has the greatest emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Through, uh, though we haven't made much mention of, of it until now, the Holy Spirit has been very much present in these early chapters. You can go back and just think about that. The angel Gabriel foretold to Zechariah, for example, that John the Baptist would be, according to Luke 1.15, filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. The angel Gabriel also told Mary, as he foretold the birth of Jesus in Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. When Mary visited Elizabeth, we're told in Luke 1, 41 and 42 that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and blessed Mary. In Luke 1, 67 and following, Zechariah, John's father, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied about Jesus the Messiah. When Jesus was presented at the temple when he was born, he was seen by a righteous and devout, quote-unquote, man named Simeon, of whom we are also told in Luke 2, 25 and 26 that the Holy Spirit was upon him. This same Simeon, uh, upon whom was the Holy Spirit, we are told, came in the Spirit, quote-unquote, into the temple to bless the infant Jesus. When John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness, he foretold the coming of Jesus the Messiah, saying that he would, Luke three sixteen, baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when Jesus was baptized by John, uh, it says in Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. So the Holy Spirit has been very much present in these uh, first three chapters, each of them. And this only intensifies here in chapter 4. It was the very first verse of this chapter, and we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. After Jesus withstood the devil's temptations in the wilderness, it says in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee to continue his public ministry. And as Jesus came to his hometown in Nazareth, uh, he's given a scroll to read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what does he turn to and read in the scroll? He turns to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, which begin by saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's Luke 4, 18. Jesus read that passage and told the people that he was the fulfillment of that passage. So Jesus is the Messiah, but more specifically, he is the Spirit-anointed and Spirit-filled Messiah. The Holy Spirit rested on Jesus 
during his earthly ministry. And I believe this is why Luke emphasizes toward the end of this chapter that Jesus has authority over unclean spirits. There was a man in the synagogue in Capernaum in verse 32 who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Well, the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus, rebuked and cast out the powerless and uh, subservient unclean spirit from the man. See also verse 41. This is just a subset of the larger topic of the overall authority that Jesus possesses over the devil and all his activity. So let's think finally about that. Satan's authority versus Jesus' authority. Authority is a big topic in this chapter. The people in Capernaum, when they heard this, it says, uh, verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Jesus' authority is expressed here as he rebuked the unclean spirits and they obeyed his command, Luke 4.35. And again, seeing this, the people were amazed with, as they say in verse 36, with authority and power that he has to command the unclean spirits. And they come out. Not only did Jesus in, his, in this chapter rebuke demons and spirits, but he also rebuked the fever of Peter's mother-in-law so that she was immediately made well. So Jesus' authority is both confessed and acknowledged by all in this chapter. This makes Satan's temptation of Jesus earlier in the chapter all the more intriguing when, when Satan, it says, showed him all the kingdom, kingdoms of this world in a moment of time and said, to you I will give all this authority and their glory uh, for it has been delivered to me and I, will, and I give it to whom I will, Luke 4, 6. He promises Jesus that if he would just worship him, he would give Jesus all that authority and glory, verse 7. How did Jesus respond? Did he say, you're totally wrong. I don't believe you. No. It was presented to him as a temptation that must, and that, 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 it must have had some element of truth in it for it to be a genuine temptation. He responded simply by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13 that only the Lord is to be worshipped. But still, what was up with Satan's temptation here? Well, indeed, Satan is presented throughout the New Testament with a variety of authoritative titles. Jesus himself refers to Satan in John 12, 31 as the ruler of this world. Likewise, Paul refers to Satan in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 as the God of this world, little g. And also in Ephesians 2, 2 as the prince of the power of the air. John goes so far as to say in, uh, of Satan in 1 John 5, 19, quote, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, what are we to make of all this? I'll tell you. We've already seen in Luke 4 that Jesus possesses authority, especially complete authority over Satan's demons. And Satan himself apparently has no power or authority over him in the temptation. Furthermore, in that John 12, 31 passage I just mentioned a moment ago, Jesus actually says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When will this take place? He tells us in the very next verse it will happen, quote, when I am lifted up from the earth. On the cross, Jesus dealt a decisive blow to Satan and his power. Satan's greatest power and advantage is death, and Jesus overcame his greatest power through his own death and thus his resurrection. The writer of Hebrews said that Jesus partook of flesh and blood like ours so that, quote, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That's Hebrews 2.14. John would later tell us that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8. Paul tells us that Jesus 
disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Colossians 2.15. Satan has some power and authority in this world, but it is diminishing and his end is already assured. Jesus reigns supreme, and that is Luke chapter 4.